0: Thanks for checking out this message from Coastal Community Church. We hope it's helpful and encouraging. All right, all right, all right. Hey, everybody, good morning. Welcome to Coastal Community Church. Great to see everybody here uh, in person. And uh, many of you watching online, thank you for tuning in and joining us there. And I just encourage you, as Scott said, to uh, stay engaged, uh, whether you're in person or online. Man, how about this beautiful weather this weekend? Oh, my goodness. I know it's a little chilly, but the sun, the sun is out and shining. And uh, so it's just been great. Um, we, We continue today in this series uh, to the church. And uh, we're looking at the the seven letters uh, that Jesus wrote uh, in the book of Revelation uh, given to the Apostle John, um, and uh, and it it applies to us today. They were written 2,000 years ago, but man, it's so timely for his church today. We're gonna be going through each one of these uh, seven letters uh, as we prepare ourselves uh, for Easter Sunday. And today, we turn to the church in Smyrna, uh, the letter to the church in Smyrna. Now, let me tell you, a little bit about the city of Smyrna. Uh, The city of Smyrna lay uh, 35 miles north uh, of Ephesus, the city that we talked about last week. And like Ephesus, uh, Smyrna was a city of temples, of temples. There was the temple of Apollos, the temple of Aphrodite, the temple of Zeus, and about a 100 other temples to pagan gods were there, so you pretty much imagine what the, uh, the moral uh, level of the city of Smyrna was like. I want you to think uh, Mardi Gras in New Orleans, but year round, okay? That's kind of what Smyrna was like. Uh, immorality, uh, they said, would flow through the streets uh, like a sewer. Um, like Ephesus, it was a, a, an affluent city, a very cultured city, but it was known to be a very sinful city. Uh, and so, right here, in the middle of this you know sinful city, like Ephesus, there was this little band of believers that was growing uh, into a church and uh, you know toughing it out. And they were enduring an enormous amount of hardship and oppression. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. Um, it is the shortest of all the letters that Jesus sent out to the seven churches, and it stands out. Uh, it is unique. In that it is the only letter, the only letter in all the seven that really doesn't contain any specific sort of of criticism. Uh, he brings encouragement. There's some you know exhortation, but there but he really doesn't point out that they lack anything per se. You know he doesn't say that they ought to do something that they're not doing, or that they need to stop doing something that they are doing. It really is just a letter of encouragement to this church, to these believers in the middle of great, great suffering and persecution. And boy, I think it applies to us today. So follow along as I read Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. I know about your suffering, and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say that they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. Now, as I said, this is a, uh, this is a strong, faithful group of believers. And they were going through more than you and I could really even ever imagine. And not only that, Jesus writes this letter and he basically tells them that it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. In fact, we know that's true because history tells us that from about 100 to 300 AD, according to the estimates of historians, some six million Christians lost their lives for their faith. So that's the context of this letter and uh, this community and this church. And Jesus, you know, he writes this letter, and honestly, he doesn't really provide you know, kind of an immediate answer or an immediate solution to their suffering. His message to them, and I believe his message to us today, is a pretty simple one. He says, be faithful. I'm with you. Be faithful, even, even to the point of death. You know, I wonder how we would handle a letter like that today. Now, to kind of help us work our way through this letter, i got a real simple outline for you today. You can see there if you're following along, either online through our app or here in person on on your insert. Uh, Three main points that I want you to see that we're going to look at today, okay? The author, the author of this letter, the affliction, what it was they were going through, and what assurances are they given from Jesus? So first of all, let's take a look at the the author of the letter. Uh, Go back to verse 8. So these aren't John's words, okay? Whose words are they? It says, this is the message from the one who is the first and the last. So to this church in Smyrna, Jesus introduces himself as the one who is the first and the last. Now, three other places in Revelation, he refers to himself as, and I know you've heard some of these, right? The alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Why? Well, Jesus is encouraging this church in Smyrna that's going through all this tremendous suffering, and he's saying to you and me, hey, everybody, listen, I am eternal. Jesus is eternal, uh, you know, he's saying, I was here long before you had anything to worry about, long before you had anything to fear, and I am going to be here long after what you fear has come and gone. I am eternal. In fact, in verse 9, you look back on your outline there, you know, he tells the hurting believers, I know about your suffering, I know about your poverty. He says, I know about these people who are hurting you. Now, When Jesus says, I know, he is literally saying, I know all about what you're going through because I've been there. I've gone through it. You know, the book of Hebrews tells us that that Jesus is a priest that has been through what what we're going through. He can relate to us. He can identify with us. He understands our pain. You know, over and over again, you know, through now 30 years as a pastor, I've spoken uh, at quite a number of funerals. And, you know, at those funerals as a pastor, I do my best to try to minister to those families who are, you know, many times broken and shattered uh, by grief and loss. But it is amazing to me to watch friends come in, friends Who maybe have experienced personally the same kind of loss. You know, whether it's the loss of a parent or a spouse or even a child. And all that friend has to do is to walk over to that one who is grieving and just put their arms around them and say, I know. I know. And And more is communicated right then and right there typically than anything I could ever say because they've been there. They've been through it. And so I think that's what Jesus is reminding this this little church of, this little gathering of believers here in, in Smyrna and he's reminding you and me. You know, through all that you might have been through this past year, maybe what you're going through right now, it's as though he wants to wrap his arms around you and just say, I know. I know. He's saying, I know what you're going through. I can identify with your suffering. I can identify with your poverty. I've been through it. I've, I've been there. I feel your pain." And I think many times we need to be reminded, you know what, there is no situation, no sorrow, no hurt, no discouragement, no disappointment, no sickness or pain. There is nothing on this earth that God will ever allow you to go through through which Jesus hasn't already been. Man, I don't know what that does for you. But for me, man, that encourages me today. That gives me hope that gives me strength, that I know that my Savior is able to lift, to minister, to encourage, to empower because he's he's with me. He's been there. He's been through it. And he's able to see you through it no matter what it is that that you might be going through. Now, the second thing that I want you to notice that Jesus says about himself is that he's alive. Jesus is alive. Again, go back to verse eight. He says, he is the one who was dead, but is now alive. Now here's the problem with us, though. I think as believers in the 21st century, we become so familiar with that, so familiar with that, that there is a tendency just to kind of dismiss it a little bit or just kind of blow right by it. Yep, Jesus is alive. Got it, check, I got it. But listen, it is good to be reminded of the fact that there is no other religious leader in history who has been able to make that claim. I mean, this right here is really what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. I mean, Buddha. Buddha was alive, he died, and that was the end of that. Mohammed, he was alive, he died, and that was the end of that. I mean, there are all kinds of people who have lived and who have died, but there is only one There is only one who's ever been able to say, I lived, I died, I rose from the dead, and I am alive. And it was witnessed by hundreds of people. It was recorded in history. Jesus is the only one. And so this is Jesus's way of saying to those who are suffering and those who are hurting, listen to this, you need to hear this. Hey, he is saying, I need to remind you of something. I am alive. I have defeated sin and death and the grave. And with me in your life, with me in your life, there's nothing to to fear. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to be afraid. Listen, do you believe that? He is eternal and he is alive. He is in this room this morning, he is here. He's in your chair. He's with you. The Bible says that if you're a believer, he is with you. He is eternal and he is alive. And so that's what Jesus is saying to this church, this group of people who are really suffering and hurting. And you know what? I think he wants to remind you of that truth today as well. I'm eternal. I'm alive. I've defeated sin and death and the grave and I am with you. Can you see what an encouragement that would have been to this church? They were really hurting. And that's what Jesus addresses next, and that's what I want us to talk about, their affliction. And he specifically mentions two things that these believers were facing. Number one, they were facing persecution. Persecution, great, great persecution. That's the first part of verse 9. It says, I know about your suffering. Now, depending on which translation you might be using, other words uh, there are used are uh, tribulation, affliction. And so it is a word that describes the stress of being under pressure, of being compressed. And in the first century, um, it, it was a word that was used to describe uh, the pressing of grapes to make wine. Now, it's also interesting that the word Smyrna, the, this town, this city, is actually the Greek word for myrrh. Myrrh. Remember? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Well, myrrh, if you didn't know, is a resin uh, that is drained out of a tree and then allowed to harden on the outside. But then it is crushed. It is crushed to produce this beautiful fragrance that's used in anointing oils, uh, that's used in embalming the dead. And it's no coincidence that myrrh, again, was one of the gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus. And so I think Jesus is using all of this as a picture of this church in Smyrna that was literally being crushed by persecution. Persecution. And so when he says, I know about your suffering, your tribulation, your affliction, he's talking to believers who are under incredible pressure. Now, where was that pressure? Where was that persecution coming from? Well, mainly from two places, the Jews and the Romans. Now go back to the rest of verse nine. He says, I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they're not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Now you need to know there was a very strong Jewish community in Smyrna and a large, large segment of the early church were were Jews who had converted to Christianity. Uh, We might call them completed Jews. They converted. Now as a result though, they were hated hated by the Jewish community, hated by the Romans. They were uh, renounced uh, by their Jewish friends and family. And many times, the Jewish community was working hand-in-hand with the Romans to stamp them out. Now, how did they do that? Well, Rome uh, had so much territory and so many provinces that they had to think, uh, think Gladiator. Okay, that that love story. By the way, just you know, it's a chick flick. Watch it with your wife today. No, anyway, um, you know, think Gladiator. They had so many provinces and so much territory that they had to come up with a strategy of uniting everyone and ensuring loyalty to Caesar. So eventually they they passed legislation mandating that everyone who lived under the authority of Rome had to take some incense and burn it while declaring Caesar is Lord. Now, all those pagan religions in Smyrna could do that. I mean, you just added another god to your collection of gods, right? No big deal. But a Christian couldn't do that. Because for a follower of Jesus, a true follower of Jesus, only Jesus is Lord. And so that set the stage for tremendous persecution. Christians were were rounded up, hunted down. In fact, because they couldn't, they wouldn't pay homage to Caesar, all of their possessions were confiscated. All of their possessions. They lost their homes, they lost their jobs, they lost all their stuff, they were ostracized. And often, nobody would hire them or sell them food. They were left homeless in the streets. Now, that led to the second uh, affliction that they were facing that he addresses. Number two, poverty, poverty. Jesus says here, I know about your suffering and your poverty, Now, the Greeks, the the Greek language had two words that was used to describe uh, the poor. One described the working class poor, where you were working, you were making it, but you you were barely hanging on. Some of you might think, Pastor Chris, that's me. I am the working class poor. But there was another term that was used to describe abject poverty, where you didn't have anything at all. And all you could do was beg. Now, with the first word, you know, at least you could support yourself even though you were barely making it, right? But this second term describes somebody who had no resources, nothing even to live. And that's the term Jesus is using here. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know about your abject poverty. I know that you have suffered the loss of everything you own for your faith. So let me ask you a serious question, maybe something to think about today. What do you think would happen to Christianity in America if suddenly Christians were stripped of everything, all their possessions, stripped of our homes, our cars, our money. Nobody would hire you. Nobody would sell you anything because you simply followed Jesus. How would we fare under that type of persecution? I mean, as a pastor in the 21st century, I got a hard enough time convincing middle-class Christians to step out in faith and tithe. How would we handle this? would we keep serving would we keep praising how would we survive but do you know what's amazing to think about so here in the first century and you know there's no doubt this was satan's strategy right i mean just strip them of everything and what's amazing to me is that his game plan flopped it backfired I mean, Satan found out, okay, strip them of everything, all their stuff, all their possessions, clean out their savings, kick them out of their homes, go ahead and take out, take away everything they have, and when it is all taken away, guess what he found out? They were strengthened. They grew they continue to praise God. They continue to do the will of God. They marched across the Roman Empire, the known world, and outlived, outgave, outloved, outprayed everyone. It didn't work. And so sometimes I think today, Satan has just cleverly reversed his strategy. Give these people who claim to be followers of Jesus everything and just watch them turn away. Just watch them live as they have no need for God and the church. Jesus says, I know about your poverty, but you are rich. What was he saying? I mean, that, that might come across offensive, right? Right? But I think Jesus was reminding them, listen, you might not have it now. You might not have you know, all the luxuries that you see surrounding you, but listen, be reminded, this is not your home. You're just passing through and you are a child of the king. You, your heavenly father, he owns it all and one day it's gonna be yours. You're rich. Now, even though these believers were facing immense poverty and persecution, Jesus does give them some assurances, and he gives them to us today too. Number one, Jesus, Jesus promises them peace in the midst of suffering. Peace in the midst of suffering. Verse 10 begins, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Now, stop right there just for a second. That's not the assurance we would want though, right? Right? I mean, that, that's not, I mean, we'd rather hear him say, hey, be at the Smyrna airport tomorrow at four, your ticket has been purchased, and we're gonna get you out of Dodge, right? I mean, that's what we would want. That's, that's the kind of assurances we want. Why? Because typically, we all want to be delivered out of a problem, not in it, not through it. Now, one more thing. As you read through this verse, I think we need to notice here that everything here is in the future tense. Look at it. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw you some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Man, that's a tough message, That's a tough message to deliver, a tough message to hear. I mean, Jesus, again, is essentially telling these believers, hey, guess what? If you're following me, it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's tough. I think we might need to be reminded of that, too. We keep thinking, oh, man, 2021, it's here. 2020 is over. It's going to get better. Really? Who says And as a believer, you know, I think sometimes we need to be reminded, guys, this is not what we live for. This isn't our home. But the encouragement is not only is he going to bring us through the adversity, the the struggle, the suffering, the pain, he's going to use it in our lives to strengthen us, to perfect us. This is, by the way, a perfect picture of uh, the threshing floor that was used to separate wheat from chaff. And you see that illustration all throughout the Bible. A threshing floor, we're not really familiar with this at all, but a threshing floor is where you, the harvested wheat would be, again, crushed to separate the actual grain of wheat from the chaff, the outer covering. Now, how did they do that? Well, they would either grind it or crush it on a hard surface, and then they would take a winnowing fork, and you see that reference in the Bible, and they would toss it up into the air, and the valuable grain would fall back down to the floor, and then the chaff would be blown away. And that process is referred to as threshing. And applied to us, that's not something we would choose for ourselves, right? I mean, if we get a vote, we vote for Club Med, right? Not threshing floor. But listen, guys, I just think we need to be reminded sometimes that um, suffering and pain and hardship is not an elective for the follower of Jesus. Now, I know there's some ministries out there and some preachers out there that will tell you different but they're not, they're not telling you the truth. And They're not sharing Scripture with you. Listen, suffering is a required course. And sometimes God allows us to go through painful adversity, and in those times, just like the wheat, it might feel like we're being tossed up and down in the wind and, and everything is out of control, but some part of our life that needs to change gets blown away in the suffering. That's not a comfortable process. And sometimes we discover things about ourselves that we don't want to see. But it brings change and growth. And Jesus' perspective is so different. You know? He is separating the chaff from the wheat to, just to bring out that small kernel of life That he has sown into each one of us. And so that's what Jesus was telling this church, and that's what he tells us. In fact, he continues, he says, The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. Now, what in the world is he talking about there? Well, the 10 days could be 10 actual days in prison, but more than likely, it is a it's a Hebrew phrase, a, a Hebrew idiom that was used many times to express the idea of an you know an undetermined but defined period of time. And so when, when Jesus speaks of them you know, being thrown into prison for 10 days, I think he was probably saying, Hey, you're going to encounter a period of persecution, but it's it's measured. It's by design, it's not gonna be out of control and it will come to an end. Again, this was a tough, tough time to be a believer. But this church, man, they were faithful. They were steadfast, they were strong. I mean, there there were no phonies uh, in the church during during this period. You know, cultural Christianity did not exist I mean, there was nobody in this church that was showing up because, well, it improved their their social standing, you know. They got a few more names they could add to their their sales list or something. I mean, nobody showed up to this church because, man, they got a rocking band and, you know, woo, they got a funny pastor. No. Man, these people just followed Jesus. That's it. And they paid a remarkable price for doing so. Here's a group of believers that were, that were facing prison and death, the confiscation of everything they owned, and they were being faithful even to the point of death. And that's the, the other uh, assurance that Jesus gives them. He promises, look at that, number two, he promises victory over death, victory over death. Look at verses 10 and 11. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Everyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. Now, what in the world uh, is the second death. What is he talking about there? Well, later on in Revelation, Revelation 21, verse 8, look at the verse there. He tells us that it is the, the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Someday, when God finally pulls the shade on human history and closes the curtain on this whole universe by destroying it with fire, do you know who's gonna overcome? And we got, we got Jesus' promise on this. The ones who remain faithful. Sometimes even to the point of death. Those who overcome are the ones who are given the crown of life. I like the way Jesus says it in John 16, Listen to this. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have what? What does he say? You will have trouble. Now, you know what's interesting to me? The word trouble there is the same word that's translated suffering here in Revelation 2.9. Affliction, tribulation. In this world, you will have these things. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And here's the good news for you and me. No matter what this world throws at you, at us, if we are in him, so have we. We're overcomers. I love the way John expresses it again in 1 John 5, 4 and 5. He says, for everyone born of God, what? Overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Verses 11 and 12, he adds, and this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is where? In His Son. Whoever has the Son has life, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Man, this is what I love about the Bible. The Bible is is so clear. I mean, it couldn't be any more clear. Here is the bottom line. There are only two, two categories of people. And, And every human being on the planet is either in one category or the other one, only two. And the categories, by the way, are not black and white, Arab or Israeli, gay or straight, rich or poor, Republican or Democrat, that's not it. The bottom line is you are either in Christ or you're not. And from a spiritual perspective, every human being on the planet is either in Christ or not in Christ. There's, there's no other options. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, and everybody who has the Son has life. And if, you don't, if you're not in the Son, you don't have life. So how do we get in the Son? Well, why don't we get the answer from the Son himself? In John five twenty four, Jesus said it again just the same way. I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sin, but they have already passed from what? From death to life. You know, so often we, we tend to think that, uh, that this is the land of the living, right? And that we're, when we die, we, we pass on to, you know, The land of the dead, you know, the afterlife. This is living, that's death. Man, it's just the opposite. Guys, listen to me. This is the land of the dying. We're all dying. But in Christ, you're gonna live forever. And, you know, no matter what this year might have looked like for you, I think we need to be reminded of this. And so the most important question of the day, the the most important question is this. Do you believe? You know, have you put your faith and trust in the Son, in Jesus? Are you in Christ? And if you are, man, he is eternal. He is ever-present. He is with you. He is alive. So no matter what we might face, he's gonna see us through it. Are you in Christ? Listen, you can, you can put your faith and trust in him today. Man, that's why we exist as a church, to share and experience the life and love of Jesus with Charleston and the world. What about you? Are you ready to come home? Could do it right now. Bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, today I thank you for your word. I thank you for the testimony of John, for receiving this letter from your son Jesus some 2,000 years ago that just speaks life today. Father, you know, it's hard as a pastor to read about this church and just not be struck by the fact that we really, no matter how much we Complained, no matter how much we focus on the difficulty of this year and what we may or may not have gone through, Father, we really have it so easy compared to those who have been before us and those in other places who really are suffering for their faith. Listen, if you are here today, you're listening to these words, there are only two categories which one do you fall in in christ or not and you only come in christ one way by believing in the son and belief is more than just mental assent toward a fact it's trust it's faith it's obedience it's all those things wrapped up together jesus knows your heart If you're ready to come home, if you're ready to be found in Christ, come home today. Pray something like this. Dear Heavenly Father, God, today, I have struggled. This year has been painful and difficult. And and, uh, today, God, I, I just throw it all at your feet. And I pray that you would use all of all the adversity in my life. And I pray, God, that it has brought me now to this place, this place of humble repentance where I I just admit before you, God, I'm a mess, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. And today I believe that one has been provided and it's your son, God, it's Jesus. Today I ask him to come into my life to forgive me of my sin. I ask him to be my savior and my Lord. I put all of my faith and trust in him and him alone. And God, as long as you'll have me here on this earth, even to the point of death, I want to follow Jesus. Thank you. And Father, I pray for Coastal that you would find our church faithful, even if to the point of death, that you would find us faithful. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. From Pastor Chris and the family at Coastal Community Church, have a blessed day.